0: Well, our children can be dismissed at Children's Church, and the rest of you can turn to your Bibles once again to the book of Ephesians. We are continuing our journey through this beautiful letter written by the Apostle Paul, and we find ourselves this morning in the second week of Advent, but the seventh part of our series which we began prior to Advent, again, out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so we'll be looking today at the latter half of chapter 3. We looked at the first half last Sunday, and we will look at the latter half, most of it at least, this Sunday, as we read verses 14 through 19, again, of Ephesians chapter 3. It's also printed for you in the bulletin on page 8. But hear Paul's words here, again, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. "For this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His spirit." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Paul here, if you notice, in verse 14, is picking up the prayer that he began back in verse 1 of chapter 3. If you recall, last week, we saw that same phrase, if you go back in your Bible, look again at verse 1 of chapter 3, you see that phrase, for this reason I, Paul, and then he continues again here, for this reason I, verse 14. Recall that earlier Paul, as he was reflecting on God's glory, as he was reflecting again on God's grace in our salvation, he was moved to a posture of prayer, but just as he started that prayer, he became distracted. Again, he interrupted himself. We saw this last week. His own marveling at God's grace propelled him in that moment of prayer to kind of hit the pause button for a second and tell you just a little bit more about God's grace. And if you remember, it was a grace which we saw last week that concerns every man, woman, And child, every tongue, tribe, and nation, every race, ethnicity, demographic, Jew, Gentile, which is the large, sweeping, you know, bifold categories that includes all of the world. A grace which we saw also commissions and empowers us for great things. If you remember, Paul reflected and does reflect time and time again in his own letters that this grace is so good, this grace is so profound, this grace is so transformative that it can take even one like himself who was a persecutor, the persecutor named Saul, and turn him into the Apostle Paul. A grace so good and so sweet and so transformative that it can turn blue-collar fishermen into bold evangelists, bold disciples, of Christ. It can turn crucified criminals. Remember the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus. It can turn crucified criminals even in their 11th hour, it can turn them into confessors for Christ's sake. So we saw all of this last week in the first half of chapter 3. But here now, in verses 14 through 19, Paul returns to that original prayer that he began. He picks up again that stream of consciousness prayer that he began back in verse 1. And as you notice, as he does so, he basically thanks God for a number of gifts. But we're going to focus on three. He focuses, or excuse me, he thanks God for a number of gifts, but we're going to focus only on three. You can think about this time of year, we think about the, the three wise men, right, the three gifts they bring, uh, which I think Paul debunked for us uh, last year that there may have been more, but you know, we see them, they're coming, okay, and giving the three gifts. We sang about that just a minute ago. We can think of three gifts this time of year or the gifts underneath the Christmas tree, but here there are also three gifts that we see for us in The gospel, and we see these three. The gift of a name, that's in verse 14. The gift of strength, verses 16 through 18. And the gift of love in verse 19. Three gifts here in the gospel for us. The gift of a name, the gift of strength, and the gift of love. So let's consider that first one. The gift of a name. The gift of a name. When I served previously at Coral Ridge Church, I had the unique blessing of ministering to people who were former authority figures in my life. You know teachers that I had when I was in middle school in high school principals or, or coaches or even you know parents who saw me grow up there at Westminster Academy and grow up there at Coral Ridge, when I became an assistant pastor there, these were now people whom I was uh, blessed to minister to. Again, right, people who used to be in authority over me, I now found myself, again, having to shepherd, getting to shepherd. It was this great privilege. I remember even when I was teaching some Bible classes at the high school, Westminster, which is attached to the church I formerly served at at Coral Ridge. Again, I was now uh, sharing classrooms with teachers who used to teach me. You know, and having to navigate then this very awkward but very beautiful scenario where what do I call them, right? What name do I call them? Do I call them, you know, Mr. Smith or do I call him Jeff, right? I mean, what, what's the name that I should use in this circumstance? It can become awkward. You want to be polite, but at the same time, you know, by then, I'm a grown man, right? I'm a pastor with degrees and wearing a sports coat, you know? I can call you by your first name. Isn't that, isn't that okay? So, again, you have to choose in that moment what do I call them? Mr. Smith, Jeff, you know, what do I choose? What do I decide in that moment? Well, I mention that because here, if you notice, when Paul is offering his prayer to God, he makes a conscious choice of what name he uses. If you notice, he chooses to employ the name Father. Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Again, he's praying to God. He's praying to the Lord. He's praying to Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh. He's praying to one of my favorite titles taken from the great hymn, uh, Crown Him with Many Crowns. He's praying to the potentate of time, which again, wasn't written back then, so Paul wouldn't have used that term. But you get the idea. There's other names that, we can employ, or Paul himself could have employed, and yet he chooses here to use in this moment the name Father. Father. And the reason, I think, is because if you're noticing, Paul is just marveling at God's grace in one facet that he is continually floored by one facet of God's goodness that he continues to unpack all throughout this letter is this idea that at its core, what God is, is building, what he has been building throughout all of time in this salvation community— In this new society that we call the church, which includes, again, every person imaginable, every kind of person, every tongue, tribe, and nation, Jew and Gentile, again, insider and outsider, this this project, this salvation project that God is building at its core is a family. It's a family. And Paul has begun to use other terms and other phrases. If you even look in this very letter of Ephesians, he's called us God's workmanship. He's alluded to us as God's handiwork. He's called us fellow citizens, members of a household. But from the very beginning, he is employing these familial terms These family terms. Again, he's reminded us, if you go back to the beginning of the letter, that we were predestined for adoption. We were predestined for adoption. We have been chosen for an inheritance. These are all dynamics. These are all realities that take place in the context of a family. And so what Paul is marveling at here, and what we should marvel at, especially in the season of Advent, is this reality that God, yes, is the great creator. And in that sense, he is the father of all humanity. That's also kind of what's at play here in this language by Paul, that God is the creator. He is the father of all mankind. He is the father of all humanity. And while every person has that lineage, while every person has that descent, We are all made in the image of the creator God. We know the truth is that many suppress that. Many deny that lineage. Many deny that heritage and descent. They suppress it. They run from it. Think of the the prodigal in Luke 15. We run from the family tree. We run from the family heritage. And again, we suppress that truth. Paul uh, puts it this way in Romans 1. For God's invisible attributes... His eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So they, all mankind, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. So we can see here that Paul makes clear, uh, clear in Romans one that we all have God as the ultimate Father. He is the Father of all humanity. But some choose to suppress that, to deny that, to run from that lineage. But what we celebrate in Advent is this reality that the Creator, the Father, is also the one who gives redemption. The Creator is also the Redeemer. And for those of us, again, by faith, who have the the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened, that fatherhood of God is properly grasped and it's claimed and it's applied. And again, we are now adopted. That relationship which was severed, that, that relationship which was broken, is now repaired. And reconciliation is possible because, again, the Father has sent the source of redemption, namely the Son Christ Jesus. And so what happens is this actual adoption occurs where we become God's children through the work of Christ. That we can now rightly claim him as father. That the prodigal has come home. The one who fractured and ruined the family. We are now welcomed back in. We are welcomed. Again, think of Luke 15, the prodigal and the father. We are welcomed with open arms. And in being welcomed we're given now a name, a name, a name which has always been ours in a sense, again, because he created us. He's always been our father. But again, a name that we spurned in our ignorance and sin. But again, when God opens the eyes of our hearts and he enlightens us through faith, we now claim that name. We now cling to that name and we desire it in ways we had never desired it before, because we now know of God's goodness. And that's what Paul is championing here, as he thinks in his own life, of his heritage as a Hebrew and as a Pharisee, having access to the oracles of God, and yet eventually having literally the eyes of his life and of his heart opened to God's grace and goodness there on the road to Damascus. And that's our testimony as well, that we have been given a name, that we have been adopted, that we are now part of the family of God and so we bow our knees before the Father. The Father. And what this really means for us? Again, if we are struggling this advent season, if we are struggling at the end of a crazy year like 2021, if we are, you know, trying to really find a reason to rejoice here in this season, what this reality of having a Father who has named us reminds us of, us reminds us of is that if we are part of God's family, that we are never, ever forgotten. We're never forsaken. That the loving Father never forgets his children. I mentioned this story before. In fact, I've actually read uh, the, the formal kind of recounting of this story before, but I'll just summarize it here. It's the story, if you remember, of the earthquake in Armenia, In 1989, it was an earthquake which struck, it was an 8.2 on the Richter scale, and in one particular town where it was really, really felt, there was a schoolhouse which sat, and it was just flattened to the ground. It was knocked down to mere rubble. And as the story goes, there was this father who would walk his child every day to that schoolhouse, and as he walked his child to that schoolhouse, he would say to him, Armand, Armand, no matter what, I'll always be there. No matter what, I'll always be there. And so what happens is that when that earthquake strikes and the the schoolhouse is knocked to rubble, this father knows, he hears, he sees what's happening around him. And what happens is that he runs to that schoolhouse. And as he sees that rubble there, again, everybody begins to despair. Everybody begins to lose hope. Even some start to, to turn back, but not this one father. He starts digging He digs with his bare hands, and he starts digging and digging and digging, and soon more people join in. They dig 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours. They keep digging until finally they hear a voice. They hear a voice, and as they pull back the rubble, they realize it's this man's son and it's some of his classmates who are still alive. And as that child stands up, the story goes. He looks to his classmates. He looks to his peers, and he says, see, see, I told you, I told you. My father he would never forget us. My father would never, ever forget us. You see, that's what's happening here as Paul thinks about that. He bows his knees before the father because we are part of his family. And if we're part of his family, if we've been given a name, Christian, the name of Christ is literally stamped upon you, and the father never forgets us, never forsakes us. And if we truly believe that, if we truly cling to that truth, then it opens up then that second point for us today, that second gift. We find ourselves strengthened. Strengthened. Again, God gives us as Father the gift of a name, namely son, namely daughter, beloved, child, forgiven. And that name then gives us a source of strength look there in verse 16 and 17 I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith he strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith when God adopts us, when God names us as His children, what kind of strength here does He supply? What kind of strength does the Father give? Is it superhuman strength? Think about your own testimony. When you became a Christian, if you work out, if you frequent the gym, when you became a Christian, did your bench max just go through the roof? All of a sudden, you could curl more, your biceps got bigger, you could bench more. Did that happen, right, when you became a Christian? Probably not, right? If you did, we need to join a different denomination. Let me know what denomination that is, all Right? Okay? Did that happen? No, probably not. Probably not. When you carry bags of mulch from Home Depot to your yard, can you now carry twice as many because you're a Christian? When we were unloading pumpkins many weeks ago, Were those of us who are true believers carrying double on our shoulders? I don't think so. I don't think so, right? Of course not. We know the answer to that. Does the strength here that God supplies, is it this superhuman, put-on-a-cape type of strength? No, of course not. Of course not. Think again of the story I just mentioned about the son and the father and the earthquake in Armenia. That son is the son of a faithful father. Who loved him without end, unendingly, and yet even being the son of that father didn't enable that child to lift the rubble off of him, off of his classmates. He's the son and the namesake of a faithful father, yet in that moment the son couldn't slip into a phone booth, again, put on a cape and become some kind of superhero, But what being the son of that father, what being the namesake of that father did enable him to do was it strengthened him, did it not? It strengthened him in his inner being. It strengthened him to the point that he would not lose hope or despair no matter the trial. It strengthened him, again, with faith to know not himself as hero, but the one who is the one who is hero, the one who is strong enough to come and save and deliver us. Again, think about your own testimony. When you became a Christian, likely your legal name did not change. In some cultures it does, actually. Talk to, where's Pascal? I think Pascal's around here somewhere. Talk to Pascal, ask him about coming to faith and being a Christian in Togo, Africa. Pretty cool, they'll actually change their family name, right? Change it to a Christian name. Well, that happens in some cultures, but in most it does not, right? When you became a Christian, your legal name likely didn't change. But your spiritual name does. Your spiritual name does. Again, we are adopted now as a son and as a daughter, and so too here. When we are known by Christ, we still harbor earthly weakness. Like our legal name is the same, we still harbor you know, earthly difficulties, earthly physical trouble, still prone to sin, still prone to struggling, still prone to weakness and frailties. Think about Paul's own testimony. Again, continually, when Paul writes this, he is enduring unjust imprisonment. He is enduring hardship. He writes elsewhere that he is abandoned but not forsaken, right? All these kinds of things, persecuted but not crushed. All of these things happen still to him. Think about Peter, The other major apostle during this time in the church, Peter. Peter is still eventually crucified for his faith. Crucified upside down, the tradition tells us. But what happens is that through all of these things, though we are prone to all of those things, we're strengthened. We're strengthened in the midst of them by faith in the one who can ultimately deliver us. We are strengthened by faith in the inner being, again, by faith, to have hope in the one who can ultimately deliver us and, thanks be to God, in Advent, has begun to deliver us. That in Advent, he came down and broke the curse. He began to make all things new. And as we know, in the second Advent, when he returns, that mission will fully be accomplished see christianity faith in christ the gospel doesn't make us superheroes we know that we know that but it does as paul reminds us let us in on the secret it lets us in on the mystery is the word that he used a couple times earlier in chapter 3 the mystery of knowing the real hero who has come and knowing the truth that, again, in his work, in his incarnation, he began to make every sad thing come untrue, as the great author Tolkien puts it. And again, that's why Paul's prayer here is that we would be strengthened as through the Spirit in our inner being as then evidenced by our faith in Christ. The strength of faith, again, to have our hearts and our minds and our eyes And our perspectives shaped by that gift of God. That we remember whose we are. We remember our name in the gospel. And then because of that, we are strengthened and steadfast amidst the challenges of life. That's how this works here for Paul. That's how it works for us as well, That the name God has given us and the strength that he supplies enables us to be people who are faithful even in the face of temptation. Of temptation. Why? How? Because we know that whatever the world offers us, whatever it promises, will always pale in comparison to the gift we've already received in Christ. To the gift we've already been given in the gospel. And so in the moment of temptation, we can look to that greater gift. We can look to that greater promise. We can be people, again, named by God and strong and faithful in the face of adversity because we know the gospel tells us in the Christian life the cross often precedes the crown. That God has always first walked with his people through adversity before the promised land comes. Think about Israel's whole collective story That God was always with them in the wilderness before the promised land would come. That Christ himself endured the cross before he received the crown of glory and was seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And that's true for us as well. And so we can be strong in the face of adversity because we bear that name of Christ. Again, as a Christian... We could be people who are strong and faithful in service and good works and witness to the world. Again, because we look in faith to the example of Jesus, who himself was all of those things. Though the world rejected him, though he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who were given enlightened hearts, who were given the gift of faith, what happened? They were also given the right to become children of God. And again, that's our Our story as well. We can be strong and faithful in service to each other, in service to our world, in witness to our world, even if they look at us like we have three heads. Even if they look at us and mock and scoff. Well, wasn't that the story of Christ himself? Wasn't that the story of the Apostle Paul as well, who was often kicked out of towns and kicked out of synagogues and laughed and stoned and all these things, right? That was his story as well, and yet he preached the gospel. Faithfully, he was strong in witness, strong in adversity because he knew the name he was given and the strength that God supplies. And again, that is our story as well. Notice as you continue reading there in verse 17, the strength that God gives, again, isn't a brute strength, but it's described as being, look there in 17, he's rooted and he's grounded. Again, there's this firm base, I mentioned before, you know, in coaching baseball, one of the things that we often tell, you know, I, I've told my own son and I, I tell the other kids on the team who I get to coach that hitting, being a strong hitter, it comes from the ground up, right? You have to be firmly rooted. If you're kind of dancing your feet and just reaching for pitches, never going to happen, right? But if you're strong in your legs, you're rooted, you're grounded, right, a firm base, you can then hit with power. You can hit a ball Well, it comes there from being grounded and rooted in something. Well, That's also true here for us, that we are grounded and rooted. That's where our strength comes from. But notice in that Paul gives it a specific name here. We're grounded and rooted in love. That's our third point, our third and final point. We're grounded and we're rooted in love. We're given a name, strength, That strength is grounded and rooted in love. Verse 18, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The name that we've been given, the strength that we can now have, again, a strength fixed on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. These realities are only possible, these realities are first possible, because Paul tells us of the love of God, the love of God, a love which pursued us in our sin, a love which chased us, again, think of the prodigal and the father. As Sally Lloyd-Jones, a great author and writer of the Jesus Storybook Bible, a good children's Bible, as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. This love was made manifest again in Christ, at the Incarnation. The very thing we celebrate in Advent And I love here how Paul not only reminds us of where it all begins, but he then acknowledges that it takes, really, a supernatural work. It takes an act of God, a miracle. We don't think miracles still happen today, but they do. They do, right? It takes a supernatural work. It takes a miracle, an act of God, to actually be able to comprehend his love. To get our arms around His love That's what Paul says here. I pray that that you would be strengthened to comprehend, to know, to fathom the love that has come your way in Christ. It's a love that goes beyond mere knowledge. It goes beyond earthly knowledge. It goes beyond being able to study or quantify it. It takes an act of God for us to actually be able to understand the depths of our love. And again, Paul just cannot get past that in his own life. This love which changed him. This love which redeemed him. And as he then prays for the Ephesians and for us as well, he prays that God would give us that same just kind of knocked off our feet wonder. But then in that moment of wonder, really believe. Really, really believe that that love isn't too good to be true. Or that love isn't just for somebody else, right? Right? Yeah, I can understand God loves this person because they have it all together and they they're, you know, they're such a great Bible student, whatever it might be, right? No, but the love of God is for you. That it's not too good to be true. That it actually is for you, and it's for me. And if you notice, Paul, again, he just can't he can't contain himself. And so he says, I pray that the Lord would give you strength to comprehend with all the saints. And then he starts just kind of going off. The breadth. The length, the height, the depth, you know, any metric of measurement you can fathom. May God grant you that to understand his love. And is Paul at this point just kind of running out of words to say? Possibly. But some commentators, and this is pretty cool, some commentators actually believe though that when he's saying, I hope you know the breadth and length and height and depth, that he's thinking about the Ephesians. And he's thinking about those who would actually live in the city of Ephesus and who would sit in the shadow of this great building, which was almost too big to measure. This great building, this great temple to the god Artemis. In fact, you can read about that in Acts 19. If you remember, when Paul goes to Ephesus, in preaching the gospel, he threatens the the cult to the goddess of Artemis And so here, as he's thinking of those who who dwell again in the Ephesian church, a house church, no doubt, and they sit in the shadow of this great temple, which seems so large, too large to measure, he wants to give them something greater, something even more glorious. One historian now, it puts it this way when actually describing that temple, an ancient historian. I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of mausolus But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, Those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. You see, as they sit in the shadow of that temple, a temple seeming without measure, who can fathom the breadth and the length and the width and the depth of that great temple? Here comes Paul. And he says, you've actually been captured, you've been known you've been saved, you've been brought into a family and a temple even greater even greater no one can fathom its breadth its width, its length and its depth and that's the love of God that's the love of God which strengthens us which names us which calls us and I say that as we close because again likely you might be someone here today in Advent who feels the same way about the temple in Ephesus You look around the world, and the number of temptations which beckon seem to be just too grand, the breadth, the the width, the length, the depth of the temptations always bombarding me. Who can overcome those? Or maybe you look at the troubles of the world the same way. You sit in the shadow of this world where who can measure the amount of trouble which comes our way at all times, from all places, from all sides? And yet Paul here says again, no, no, no. That might be true. Might be true. But you have been known, you have been called, you have been loved by something so much bigger and brighter and grander that I pray, Paul says, you would be given the strength to comprehend it. The strength to comprehend it, to know it, to believe it, and to bank on it as God's children Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. And his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. We've been given three gifts in the gospel, a name, strength, and a love which surpasses knowledge, a love which is ours in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for that love which goes beyond measure. A love which really can only be encapsulated in the person of Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, the anointed one. If we wanna see your love on display, that's where we look. But even then our minds falter for how can we actually understand something so profound and mysterious as the incarnation That the God of the universe would veil himself into frail human flesh. And yet we know that that mystery is our hope. That the fact that it goes beyond our comprehension speaks to its profound nature. Speaks to the fact that you are God and we are not. That we are the finite trying to understand the infinite. And yet, Lord, in all of those things you are gracious and we thank you for that. And so Lord, I pray that this Advent season, again, you would remind us that it's not just an idea, it's not just a season with a fancy name and fancy words, but it's a truth which is ours, it's a person which came in real space and time to deliver us, and again, to adopt us into the actual family of God, and to give us a name, to strengthen us, and to love us forevermore. So I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.